0: Welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I'm an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. Today, we're going to be breaking down a lot of the details surrounding non-tuberculosis mycobacteria, or NTM, pulmonary infections, and I couldn't have asked for two better people to do it with, so I'm ready to get started. This episode of Breakpoints has been sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from our partners at Paratech. While Paratech graciously supported this episode, they didn't participate in its development, content, or production. Today, I have two expert panelists joining me, Dr. Wendy Drummond and Dr. Jeff Pearson. Dr. Drummond is an infectious disease specialist at Providence Portland Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. She's board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics and also has a master's degree in public health. She completed her fellowship in infectious disease at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. She's the Medical Director for Infection Prevention for Ambulatory Care and also sees patients in the inpatient and outpatient settings. She has special interests and expertise in the management of mycobacterial diseases, complex pulmonary infections, as well as infections in the immunocompromised host. She's actively involved in patient education and advocacy in the area of NTM lung disease and also serves as an investigator in multiple clinical trials in the field of NTM research. She's also the co-founder and co-host of NTM Talk, a podcast dedicated to supporting our patients with education about bronchiectasis, NTM lung disease, and other chronic lung infections. Welcome, Wendy. It's good to have another podcaster on the pod.
1: Thanks, Rachel. This is really fun, and thank you so much to you and your other coordinators of the podcast for inviting me and inviting
0: Jeff. We're so happy to have you. And yes, that brings me to next to Dr. Pearson. He's a clinical pharmacy specialist in infectious diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where he serves as co-lead for the hospital's antimicrobial stewardship program. Dr. Pearson received his doctor of pharmacy from Northeastern University in 2014 and completed residency training in infectious diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. His clinical interests include antimicrobial stewardship, antimicrobial PKPD, and NTM infections. Jeff is also my co-resident, and he was the PGY2ID when I was a PGY1, so it's good to get the co residents back together, Jeff.
2: Thanks, Rachel, and it's great to be on the pod. I've been a fan since day one, first time caller in, and it feels so great to be in podcast royalty here with Wendy and you.
0: Oh, well, I wouldn't consider myself podcast royalty, but thank you for the compliment. No matter what, Wendy definitely is because she has her own podcast. (laughs) So anyway, at my institution, NTM infections are not uncommon, but if I'm honest, I always find myself in a bind whenever I'm helping to manage one because I feel like I'm never seeing the same thing twice. There's always huge differences between the site of infection, what species they're infected with, where they inquire the infection. And so it's always a quandary as to what to do. Thankfully, though, two years ago, we got an updated guideline from IDSA, ESCMID, the American Thoracic Society, and the European Respiratory Society, which was really great since the last version was published back in 2007. To kick us off, Wendy, can you tell us about some of the key changes in these new guidelines?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to, and I I think I want to just sort of echo what you were saying before is I I think when people are presented with an NTM infection, even if they're a seasoned infectious disease specialist, the reality is is that in general, these infections are uncommon, although for me, obviously, they seem like they're the most common thing on the planet because I do a lot of treatment of it, but You know, the approaches are varied depending on the species that's isolated. Um, The treatment approaches are different for different species, whether or not you're talking slow growers or rapid growers. So, you know, I I think your feelings are echoed by many. Um, We were anxiously. Awaiting the new guidelines. They'd been in development for a number of years and they finally dropped them in July of 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. So we were we were grateful to have some updates. And so I think it's really relevant to, to kick this off with talking about those updates. So I guess I would preface it by saying, you know, what we're talking about today and the new guidelines are really applying to specifically pulmonary disease. And really isn't focusing on the management of extrapulmonary disease. And when I talk about extrapulmonary disease, and I know it seems like okay, we know what that is, but <laughs> it's really disease manifestations at sites outside the lung. And um, and even the spectrum of species that cause these disease can can vary. Um, so so we're focusing primarily on NTM lung disease. And I think we'll really focus our discussions today on MAC species as well as those um, rapid growing mycobacteria that fall under the umbrella of Mycobacterium obsessus group. And we'll talk about that more specifically in a little bit. The other thing I wanted to clarify is that we're really not talking about um, NTM lung disease and patients with cystic fibrosis because that's a very unique group. And so the guidelines were really not focused on that group and um, CF actually has its own set of guidelines, (laughs) Um, the US and the European um, Um, societies publish specific guidelines just for CF and then we're really not talking about patients with HIV and advanced um, AIDS. So um, just to be specific about that. So one of the main things that came out of the new guidelines is really thinking about um, an increased focus on consideration of earlier treatment versus watchful waiting. This has always been a bit of a dilemma in this space because um, mycobacteria are ubiquitous in the environment. They're in the soil. They're probably in most municipal water supplies in the country, and so we're exposed to these pathogens all the time, and so there's always this question of if we isolate this one of these mycobacterial species from the airways, does that actually represent a true disease process that requires treatment. And this has been a quandary for physicians for a number of years. So they really gave more specific information in talking about, okay, well, who are these patients that we're gonna treat earlier on? And that would include patients who are smear positive, Um, that can suggest a higher burden of disease, especially in those patients who have cavitary disease. Now, in reality, we've been treating patients with cavitary disease up front for years, but I think it really helped to to spell this out for clinicians and give them additional guidance in this area. Um, The other thing is is thinking about um, those risk factors for, for progression, especially in those folks who do have smear positive disease, because You know, every once in a while we'll have a patient who's smear positive, but who's rather rather clinically asymptomatic, and whose CT scan may not be very impressive. So that that may not be someone that we treat right away. But when you're thinking about risk factors for progression, you know, we think about more virulent species such as Mycobacterium abscessus. That might be someone that you either keep a closer eye on, or you may want to treat them sooner. Um, Or uh, patients with low BMI. You know, some of these other factors that may increase their risk. The other thing that they really um, provided some clarity around in these guidelines is the use of macrolides. Now we know that macrolides is a back, uh, backbone to NTM therapy, um, really does predict better outcomes. And so in those patients who do have macrolide resistance, we know they don't do as well. So there's there's been a focus on macrolide use, but I think they were a little more um, discreet in saying, okay, probably our preferred macrolide is azithromycin versus clarithromycin, which has historically been referenced in the guidelines, and I I know that Jeff is going to talk about this a little bit more later, excuse me, Um, but there's a number of reasons why we we prefer that macrolide, including just tolerance, uh, drug interactions, those sorts of things that we'll expand on later. Um, The other thing is, and, and this was a major, a fairly major change to the guidelines, is this importance of reevaluating these patients at a six-month time point. Now, this is something that we were naturally doing just out of uh, our routine monitoring of these patients on treatment, but what became really important was the approval of um, liposomal amikacin or ALICE, um, as it's referred to, erikase is uh, the trade name, This was approved uh, several years ago, and this is for treatment refractory adults, so patients over the age of 18 who have persistently positive cultures at that six-month time frame, and so really the guidelines are now including that indication for this medication in those patients with refractory disease at six months.
2: Yeah, and I'll just come in to say that uh, the, the 2020 guidelines are a great update, and needed to really focus in on the pulmonary infection versus the old 2007 guidelines. Talked about a variety of different sites of infection. Um, But from a medication standpoint, not a lot changed outside of the inhaled imacacin. like Wendy mentioned, they do now prefer azithromycin over clarithromycin. This is due to almost every aspect of care in terms (laughs) of azithromycin is better tolerated than clarithromycin. It's less prone to drug-drug interactions with other medications. Um, and it seems to have better efficacy against NTM infection. So there's really, um, the only thing going for clarithromycin is probably the plethora of data from past before azithromycin was used, but we really feel comfortable using azithromycin up front in almost every patient when a macrolide is indicated. And then just to jump into inhaled amicase just a little bit more, because this was new to this updated guideline because it was just approved in, I believe, 2018. Um, and Wendy summed it up in a great summary in terms of that you really only use inhaled amicacin if the patient has refractory disease, so failed after six months of active systemic therapy, or if there's systemic toxicity in cavitary disease with IV amikacin. I will say, I've only had experience with inhaled amicazin twice, and Wendy probably has much more experience than I do in the outpatient setting, Uh, but both times the manufacturer, InsMed, has been very helpful in helping obtain supply because it is the on-label use. It's the only medication actually approved for uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. Um, But I I do want to say, while it isn't a change with the 2020 guidelines, there are two key principles that we don't necessarily, we're going to dive nitty gritty into a lot of drugs today, uh, but two key principles to any NTM pulmonary infection treatment, and one is never use monotherapy please never use monotherapy in NTM. This was endorsed in the old guidelines. It's endorsed in the new guidelines. I've had patients that have transferred into our hospital on azithromycin monotherapy, and this is not good. We retest those isolates and they are azithromycin resistant. Please do not do that. Always use combination therapy, and we'll get into some of those a little bit later on. Also, uh, thrice weekly dosing, so three times week dosing, can be considered in non-cavitary disease down the line. Um, and this is kind of across the board Board in pulmonary infections in patients that are stabilized if they are on medications that be, can be dosed thrice weekly. And the guidelines do go into that. That was mentioned in the previous guidelines, but kind of brought to the forefront in the, the 2020 version.
1: Yeah, I, those are amazing points, Jeff. Thank you for bringing those up. Uh, I just had a couple of additional comments. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about the azithromycin is uh, just the ease of once daily dosing. Um, so the clarithromycin is twice daily, and the other thing I just wanted to call out about the clarithromycin, and I think the audience that we're speaking with is probably aware of this, but you know, patients do develop a, a pretty significant taste arrangement with clarithromycin, and it's actually a pretty common side effect. And so, you know, just that dysgeusia or the metallic taste, or you know, so um, and the problem in this patient population is that a lot of these patients are having difficulty maintaining weight anyway. We're starting three new drugs for the treatment of MAC, for example. There's potential GI side effects, and now we're just making it even worse with with poor t- <laughs> taste problems. So I just wanted to call that out. One thing that's really interesting too, and we'll talk more about this when we talk about susceptibilities, but since we're talking, we were just talking about the macrolides, is that. Um, Most of the time, if you have a lab that's reporting out macrolide susceptibilities, they call out chlorithromycin. And I think, you know, for most providers, especially if they're not doing a lot of NTM in their practice or seeing a lot of NTM patients. they reflexively prescribe clarithromycin because that's the medication that's listed on the susceptibilities. So just just something that I wanted to call out. But generally speaking, if if on the susceptibility report it calls out um, clarithromycin susceptibility, that that of course can be translated to azithromycin. If you wanted to comment on that,
2: that is uh, that is exactly the case. We generally when we send out our isolates, it comes back as clarithromycin susceptible or resistant, and we'll absolutely use azithromycin instead as a surrogate. Uh, clarithromycin as a surrogate. We do have to worry about the inducible macrolide resistance with erythromycin ribosomal methyltransferase gene or ERM41, which a lot of the send out labs, and we'll get into where we send our own isolates in a second, but they, they will be nice enough to run that testing for us to check for inducible macrolide resistance, which might not show up on the original susceptibility profile.
1: And I think, you know, just to be specific about what Jeff's referring to, he's really speaking to, I think, Mycobacterium abscessus as opposed to to MAC, right?
2: Yes, and I should, yep, because we have not differentiated those two, exactly. Mycobacterium (laughs) abscessus, and only specifically subspecies abscessus and boletii and not nacillians.
1: Correct. And with respect to the thrice-weekly dosing, um, you know, that's really in patients who have mild disease. Um, and I, I, you know, we all have our, our biases that we develop at our institutions where we get, you know, most of our training for, for you know, these sub specialized areas. And I have to say, I, I don't know that I've ever actually used thrice weekly dosing, but I will also say that given that I grew up at National Jewish for my NTM, uh, developing my NTM treatment acumen, um, in all fairness, the patients that we typically see there have more advanced disease anyway. So so thrice weekly dosing, certainly appropriate for those who have mild fibronodular disease and fairly mild symptoms. For those with advanced disease, they're going to need daily dosing.
0: Thank you guys for that beautiful summary of the new guidelines. Uh, It was very concise for such a lengthy guideline, and it sounds like there's a lot that has changed, but also not that much. Um, But it's nice to get some of those things reemphasized, especially since it was 14 years since the last update. Also, I'm glad you all started to talk about treatment because there are a lot of questions around NTM management that I really want to get into. Uh, First, Wendy, can you talk about susceptibility testing? You touched on that already. I want to know why you do it, how to do it, how long I have to wait for results to come back, and how they're affecting my therapy.
1: Right. This is this is such a great topic, and I I guess you know
0: for many many
1: years, and and I actually still see this. um, Especially, you know, I may have patients who are referred to me from other institutions. Not every lab reports out susceptibilities, Um, and so that's actually really been it's been a shift. And I appreciated that they called it out in the guidelines how important it is actually to at least at a minimum. Report out susceptibilities for the macrolides and for amikacin, um, and that applies to to mac for sure. But this also, in you know, translates into talking about mycobacterium abscess, abscessus in the, in the group um, and the species that fall within that that group. But really important um, in terms of. Predictors of treatment success, which we already referenced, and I think Jeff and we can't say it enough: no monotherapy. Um, so, so the other thing is, is the other emphasis is on speciation. Actually, I'm just going to talk about that briefly because a lot of labs will still report out MAC, and so you, your is it chimera, Mycobacterium chimera. Well, that was associated with the heater cooler unit outbreaks a few years ago, and it really. Um, plays into the importance of species identification, especially when you're looking at different clinical syndromes. Um, so we like to know is it intracellular? is it avium, is it chimera? There, there's certainly clues there, even though the treatment in general, the treatment approach is going to be very similar. Um, and then in terms of susceptibility testing for something like the rapid growers, but specifically talking about obsessis, um, the emphasis is certainly knowing what your macrolide and amicacin susceptibilities are, but the reality is with, with those particular mycobacteria, they're, they're, as a standard, they're going to report out a more expanded susceptibility profile. So They're typically going to list fluoroquinolones, and they'll, they'll call out moxifloxacin and Cipro. They'll, they'll provide susceptibilities for emipenem, um, usually for tigacycline and usually for linazolid um, and cefoxitin. Um, for Mac, at at the very least, we want to know um, macrolides and amikacin. It's not as important to have to know what the susceptibilities are for rifampin and the thambutol. And that's that's probably honestly a whole nother podcast <laughs> talking about why that is. But but generally speaking, um, you know, we really focus on on those others in terms of how long. Well, you know, it can take. 6 to 8 to 10 weeks for these cultures to finalize. Um, it, especially for the slow growing mycobacteria, um, you know, it can take several weeks for to finalize and until you have the identification, you know, so that's going to hold up your susceptibility results. Um, you know, if they report out MAC and you're just waiting for susceptibility results on your patients, it's certainly re- reasonable to start treatment. You can always make adjustments if needed. So hopefully that answers that question. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and I'll, I will just say exactly. So, MAC susceptibilities are a little more expected what you're going to get. So, starting therapy, we feel pretty confident. And then, when we get results back, we might transition therapy. Rapid growers like Mycobacterium abscesses are a little more difficult. You really don't know upfront what you're going to get a lot of the time. And we generally start with quite a few different antibiotics. Um, we send out our, our NTM isolates to uh, UT Tyler, to Barbara Brown Elliott and Richard Wallace's lab. Um, and it, I can't, I'll just echo what Wendy said is it's really important to get to the species level ID that helps in terms of susceptibilities. And then the susceptibilities themselves will help when you have a rapid grower that you need to target therapy, um, the best way that you can.
1: Right. It's, it's definitely not a one size fits all. And, um, you know, I'm just going to briefly just say something about extrapulmonary disease where, you know, it. it and well, I, you know, it applies to NTM in general. Most of the time, these are um, slowly evolving infections, and the vast majority of time, we do have the luxury of waiting for susceptibilities. Although sometimes there, you know, there are certain situations where we we are going to treat earlier. I've had oncology patients who have mycobacteremia, for example, and we know it's a rapid grower, you know, so there are situations where you're going to have to make some clinical decisions, but the vast majority of time you'll be able to wait. If it's obsessus group and you don't know which subspecies it is, you're still going to add a macrolide up front, even though you may have inducible macrolide resistance, although you're going to know in about 14 days anyway, but um, just just to call that out
0: yeah, and speaking about therapy initiation, uh, Wendy, when and how are you starting therapy in these patients, especially with pulmonary disease? And can you kind of walk us through what the general treatment approach is?
1: Well, absolutely. and and this is this is nicely nicely outlined in the guidelines as well. and And I go over this with my patients. You know it's really important to take the time to really explain, just due to the Degree of complexity, right? So, what the guidelines call out is we're looking at really three different criteria in terms of determining: Do we think that this is a true disease process? Does this patient truly have NTM lung disease requiring treatment? So, the first thing that we consider is symptoms, right? And the symptoms can be really protean in this patient population, ranging from just this. Um, you know, persistent, unrelenting, dry cough. Sometimes it's productive. Sometimes people are losing weight. Some people have night sweats. Some people have shortness of breath and night sweats. Some people have weight loss. So it can present a lot of different ways. Um, so they have to have compatible pulmonary symptoms. Uh, we typically get a CT scan. Um, some people will make the diagnosis based on chest radiographs, but we usually call out the importance of Doing a high-resolution CT scan at baseline, just because it's going to give you a better assessment and understanding of the extent of disease in the lungs. So they have to have the compatible radiographic findings. There are stigmata that are very typical of NTM lung disease, and um, and just recognizing those patterns. And then finally, you have to have the supporting microbiology, right? So um, we typically ask patients to send off three morning sputums, and we want at least two or three of those to be positive. Um, some patients are called dry bronchiectatics. So, most of these patients have some sort of underlying structural airway disease, such as bronchiectasis, and they require a bronch. So, if you do have a bronchoscopy or a lung biopsy, tissue that's positive. But um, we like to have additional supporting expectorated or induced
0: sputums uh, if we can to help support that diagnosis. Mm. A morning sputum coughing up three specimens. As soon as you wake up, it sounds absolutely <laughs> not that wonderful. Um, but I'm really excited now because we're going to pivot to talking about some of the drugs for these infections. And there's a whole bunch of them and we have some new ones to talk about. So I'm really excited. And first, Jeff, I want to ask you, what's the deal with only using imipenem and cefoxitin out of all the beta-lactams? Those are not usually my first choice for other bacterial
2: infections even before we talk about the beta-lactams in particular, let's talk about what our base structure is of treatment of both MAC and M abscessus. Um, so for mycobacterium and avium complex, according to the guidelines, it generally starts with three drug therapy uh, with rifampin, ethambutol, and um, azithromycin, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and if the patient has cavitary disease, uh, then you might add on amicacin up front. Um, but generally, it's a three-drug therapy regimen for mycobacterium avium complex versus in a rapid growing situation. There's a little bit more nuance, but there's generally... Um, actually, Wendy, do you want to take over uh, for the m abscessus section sure. of things where whether you do initial phase with four drugs and what you normally pick, and then I can chime in with what we do?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'll be, I'm really interested to hear your approach as well. So um- the standard approach that that I learned and and is continues to be my practice is we typically start out with that macrolide backbone, even not even if we don't know whether or not inducible macrolide resistance is present. We also know that for a lot of these patients uh, who may have a concomitant bronchiolitis or other airway inflammation that the azithromycin is pretty effective in managing some of their symptoms. so, there are some cases where even if we know the macrolide is resistance, we we still maintain the use of that drug because they're getting clinical benefit from it. And then um, we typically include clofazamine as part of that initial regimen, um, preferentially using Emmapenem, and then IV amikacin. So you know, in an upfront regimen in these patients, even if they don't have cavitary the disease. The way it stands right now is you're typically using two oral medications and two IV medications for at least the initial six weeks, and you know that's that's challenging for patients having to take on two IV medications up front for that long of a period of time.
2: Yeah, it, actually, we have a we have a very similar approach. We're using in we're talking mycobacterium abscessus mostly here or primarily here and the subspecies there, azithromycin we're using up front, whether it's, even if it's resistant 50% of the time, we are using up front because there is that theoretical also benefit that isn't antibacterial activity, but anti-inflammatory. Um, we also have, um, we'll go into it a little bit later, but we do use clofasmine at our institution quite frequently up front with either, well, with IV amikacin and either cefoxitin or penum. I think we're a little bit more loose on using and. Actually, this is a great time to now, Rachel, go to your question about the beta-lactams. In that, I do believe imipenem is a lot easier dosing-wise. We can dose it at twice daily versus sephoxin generally is Q4 hours, but some some institutions use Q8 hour dosing, but imipenem is a little bit easier to dose on, especially in the outpatient setting. and there is a little bit more data supporting it in vitro, at least for activity against M-obsessus, but just there's that stewardship brain of like, I'm an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at heart and using any imipenem over cefoxitin when they're both susceptible um, it, from, from a gram-negative side of things makes me squirm, but from a mycobacterial side of things, it shouldn't make me squirm the same way that, that it, it does on initial seeing those orders come through. <laughs> Um, but in, in terms of the beta lactams themselves, why are we only talking about impediment suffoxidin? Uh, M obsessus has a chromosomally encoded uh, beta lactamase, BLA MAB or BLA MAB. I don't even know that's if, how you pronounce it, but I, I'm going to do that for the, for the rest of this discussion. Um, BLA MAB hydrolyzes beta lactams, and it's not effectively inhibited by any of our traditional beta lactam, beta lactamase inhibitors, clavulonate, tazobactam, solbactam. But so cefoxitin and imipenem seem to be more stable against Blomab in vitro than other beta-lactams. I should say, though, of note that Blomab is inactivated by novel beta-lactamase inhibitors, Avibactam, Relobactam, and Vaborbactam in vitro. So this could provide further treatment options. There's some preliminary data on miropenem, Vaborbactam is the one I'm thinking of. I believe imipenem, Relobactam as well has been published in vitro that um, seem like these could potentially be options, option, but we have to keep in mind that mycobacteria in general possess a, an unusually thick cell wall, making it very difficult for all beta-lactams regardless, um, because they work by inhibiting peptidoglycan synthesis from getting to their target site of action, regardless of the beta-lactamase inhibitor your activity. You're not gonna be able to use the beta-lactamase if the beta-lactam-beta-lactamase combo can't even get to the site of action.
1: Generally speaking, I favor imapenem because it's better tolerated, right? Um, Sefoxitin. Wow. Rash is is a very real problem with this. And I would say at least 40%. Jeff and Rachel, I don't know what the real data says. Okay. I'm, I'm not looking it up date or whatever right now to say, how often do patients get sufoxt- rash with sefoxitin? But I can tell you 40 to 50% of my patients. The reason that I will reach for sufoxtin, um over imapenem would be either prior drug intolerance or, or a drug intolerance that happens right now. Um, so that, that would be the reason that I would reach for cefoxitin over imipenem, honestly. So I, oh. I just wanted to call that out, but it's- It's a it's great thing to call
2: out because I forgot to mention that we've seen neutropenia quite, quite yes, a bit yes. with the high dose of that we switched to imipenem and it resolves, so yeah.
1: You know, with imipenem, there, we will occasionally have these patients who will get um, high fevers, rash, myalgias, um, transaminitis and, and leukopenia. So, so that, that can happen, but that's, I have to say that's pretty unusual, but, um, so anyway, that's, that's one reason why I might favor the emipenem, but I've used cefoxitin a lot and sometimes I blow, blow through both of those and have to reach for other less desirable medications.
0: Thank you guys so much for going through, um, those different agents. And something I heard both of y'all mention is how often you use clifazamine in this patient population. And I took it for granted where Jeff and I did residency, we had clifazamine, I feel like pretty easily accessible. It was in the research pharmacy right down the hall. But now I don't have the easiest access to it. And it's a question I frequently get asked by my physicians about how to obtain it for patients. So can you guys expand upon what the role of clefazamine is in these infections and what's the best way to get it for patients?
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Um, <clears throat> because um because larger centers, or for those of us who treat large numbers of patients with NTM lung disease, um, you know, there's an expanded access program through Novartis. And so um just for ease of of prescribing this medications to larger numbers of patients, that's probably the best way to go about it. You can also go and obtain an individual IND, but um, it's more paperwork. I wouldn't say it's more paperwork, but I would say um, it's paperwork to do that for one patient. You might as well just try to get the expanded access program. Um, And I think that it's important to. to keep in mind that clofazamine is a really valuable drug to use in these infections. I've used it in patients with MAC, um, not just M. Obsessus or some of the other rapid growers because I've had patients who have true allergies and I real allergies to both the Thambutol and Rifampin, not, not just drug intolerances, but true allergies. And so then I'm trying to come up with some other creative approach. And that might include a combination of like azithromycin, clofazamine, and even bedaculin. And it's not fun to use multiple QT prolonging agents like that, but it it just goes to show you that, you know, we have to use the tools where we have them. So I find clofazamine to be extraordinarily helpful. I think some providers don't use clofazamine because they perceive that it's difficult to obtain it, which in reality, it's actually not difficult, it just takes some time. but the alternative is they may be reaching for further medications that either don't have as good of activity or have more side effects, right, such as linazolid, for example, or, you know, even not that the, I mean, I've had a lot of success with bedacolin, but I'm just saying, even that can be difficult to get for some of our patients. What is your experience with clofazamine, Jeff, and how yeah. your patients do? My patients do great, by the yeah. way.
2: Yeah. <laughs> we also, we have an expanded access program at Brigham and Women's Hospital set up with Novartis, so it makes it easier. There's a bit of paperwork, but it's usually worth it in the end. By far, the most common side effect we see is the hyperpigmentation, <laughs> um, which some patients, are disturbed by, but a lot of patients don't mind because it makes them look more tan, it seems like. Oh, well, um, I have
1: patients I... who don't want to stop it. <laughs> they beg me to continue. Can I just continue the clofazamine? We need to get them into the clofazamine monotherapy trial with Dr. Kevin Lindrup. Um, Yeah, and that one's pretty predictable. I've had some patients, I, I would say most notably my CF patients, um, who haven't had the hyperpigmentation, which made me question whether or not that, you know, a couple of these patients were actually taking them, and I think you guys, maybe you can comment on this, either one of you, but they tend to hyper-metabolize drugs anyway, so I, I just sort of attributed it to that, but nevertheless, well-tolerated hyperpigmentation in almost 100% of patients.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's the closest thing, I mean, we'll talk about tigacyclin later, but the closest thing to a true, like, you're going to get the adverse reaction when, when you start these medications, and you need to tell the patients about it beforehand so they're not alarmed, um, the, from the from a PK standpoint, clophasmine is great. I mean, it's in vitro data, but it's shown synergy about against almost everything we use in combination for NTM infections. It has some good synergy data against amikacin, but also tigecycline, clarithromycin, isoniazid, ethambutol, pyrazinamide, linezolid, bedaquiline. You name it. Um, it's likely we don't know necessarily the true mechanism of action. At least to my knowledge, for clofazamine, but it does seem to cause cell wall destabilization. So through those properties, it allows increased influx of other antibiotics into intracellular targets, or at least that's the hypothesis.
1: Yeah, and I I always think of clofazamine because you were talking about the synergy as the wingman, (laughs) partially. I also caution providers though, to say this is not usually gonna be your game changer right? So adding this drug to a regimen is not necessarily going to be that tipping point that all of a sudden they're going to convert their cultures to negative. So in terms of if you're talking about power and efficacy of this drug, right? So I think it's important to know that. It, it definitely has its utility, especially when, when I want someone on three or four active drugs, but it's, it's, it's like with, with TB, we're not going to add a single drug
0: to a failing regimen and expect that that's, that's going to be the game changer. Okay, so note to all clinicians who don't use Glyphazamine, Glyphazamine is cool and it'll make your patients happy because they'll look tan, so don't be afraid to obtain it through the expanded access program. Okay, well now I want to pivot to some of the novel agents that are used in NTAM infections. Um, some I get asked the most about are the advanced spectrum tetracyclines, so tigacycline versus Aravocycline versus omatocycline. And I also get a lot of questions about insurance issues <laughs> revolving around these two. So, Jeff, can you start us off and tell us what's your take on which of these tetracyclines to use and how do you get them?
2: Sure. Yeah. So I- I'll start by saying. Tagacycline has the most data supporting its use in mycobacterial infections, but omatocycline and aravacycline are the new kids on the block. They don't have the same track record in terms of the data available for NTM infections, but they do both have favorable in vitro data and are associated with fewer adverse effects, specifically when it comes to GI tolerabilities. Omatocycline is the one that's kind of gained a little bit more steam just because it has an oral option, versus tigacycline and Eravacycline are only IV formulations. Um, so if you can potentially get someone an all-oral regimen for the continuation phase of treatment down the line, specifically, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I'm patients. We haven't had the ability to do all-oral regimens uh, prior to the last few, few years. Um, you did mention availability and insurance, so I can talk about that. Insurance has been difficult at times. We're about a 50-50 split in terms of getting a prior authorization approved versus it being rejected, which then requires further appeal. Um, the good news is that we do now have some limited clinical data published by our group here at Brigham, and then also a multi-center publication by Taylor Morissette when he was a fellow at Wayne State that support amoxicillin's use. And we've actually submitted those two papers, as well as some of the in vitro data Two insurance companies as the appeal, and then they have been accepted, um, which, is, which has been great news. And there's also great news for the future because Paratech, the Omatocycline manufacturer is now investing time and money into studying Omatocycline against m abscesses in a phase two clinical trial. Um, again, AravaCycline I think does play a role, but like tigacycline being only IV, it will reduce side effects, but we don't have the clinical data to support its use yet. We've used it, anecdotally in one patient thus far that was admitted to the hospital, Um, but excellent paths forward in terms of novel tetracyclines and what we can do in the terms of difficult to treat uh, NTM infections.
1: Yeah, I would echo that. And I would say, you know, as as with any of these agents and just looking, you know, globally at our, our Approaches to treating them. The only way that the patient's going to have a successful outcome is if they can tolerate what they're on. And, you know, of course, these patients are on three or four drugs, all with potential side effects. Um, Ticacycline, as you guys know, um, tends to be a little more predictable (laughs) in terms of the nausea and vomiting. It's really interesting, though. I will tell you that I have some patients who. Tolerate it beautifully. I, there's got to be something genetic to this. Who tolerate it beautifully? They never have a single problem. Um, when I used to use it, my pediatric patients, uh, peds uh, kids, seem to do great with it. It's, so it's really interesting. And then I, I tend to think that my CF patients do better with it. But um, I reach. I've had at least two or three patients in the last year that I transitioned from tigacycline to amatocycline and it was it made a world of difference. They had. No side effects at all. It was that ease of transitioning to oral therapy. Um, even one of my Medicare patients, I don't know how that happened. I don't I don't even ask, I know you're in Massachusetts, but <laughs> I don't know I don't even know how that happened. I'm not going to question it. Um, I'm just happy that <laughs> that I was able to get it and successful with with both of those cases. So glad to have that oral options. It's huge.
2: Yeah, and I will just mention one other thing about if you are to use amoxicillin. standard package insert dosing for oral therapy requires a loading dose, um, but it was approved for bacterial infections and not mycobacterial infections. Depending on the severity of the patient's infection, if you have time to wait without a loading dose, you get to steady state around day five of therapy, which likely is okay in mycobacterial infections most of the time. And it really, it reduces the chances of GI toxicities by half. The loading dose did show quite a bit of GI toxicities in in the oral phase three trial. Um, so if you can get away without doing a load, do it. If you have someone that you need to start therapy immediately, you probably still want to load it. We've, we've loaded it in a few patients without toxicity concerns, but the toxicity does increase in terms of GI tolerability when you give a load.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that, that you mentioned that. Um, I think that with my patients, I loaded both of them and they were fine, um, but it's always something to consider
0: have any of y'all's patients that have gotten a metacycline had any issues with the fasting requirements with the oral formulations no Mm -mm.
2: it's it's difficult the first time you bring it up but no um yeah
1: they're just happy to be on something that they tolerate better than tigacycline that works
2: exactly (laughs) exactly
1: looking Um, on the bright
0: side telling them to look on the bright side
1: yeah um jeff i had a quick question for you and um how do you typically dose a tigacycline? I'm just curious because we got pretty creative at times um, and I still do. So I'm curious what your standard dosing is for tigacycline and when you do it.
2: We are very creative. Um, sometimes it depends on the patient and their frailty. We'll sometimes start with the 50 milligrams Q12 hour. Sometimes we'll start at 25 milligrams Q12. Sometimes we'll, we'll even go down to 12.5 milligrams if they're not tolerating it well. Um, most people end up on the 50 milligram, but um, there's quite a few people that we just are fine with. T- I mean, now we're switching these people to imatocycline, so it's not an issue. Yeah, but we, yeah. we reduce the dosing when there's GI issues to see if it helps at all. Like if they're at, at the point where they're not going to do it at all, um, we will reduce the dosing. And we sometimes do titrate it up at the beginning if we're, we're worried.
1: Yeah, I, I do that magical approach of looking at the patient Eyeballing the patient, like, you look like you're 50 milligrams. Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's still an important consideration though, because I mean, to your point, not everyone may necessarily be able to have the amatocycline. And if they tolerate the tigacycline just fine, then you know, it's it's a good drug to have in your back pocket. Because I've had patients who could not tolerate ampenem, cefoxitin or amikacin surprising shocking i know so obviously i'm reaching you know for these other drugs or you know even just if i can't use ampenem or cefoxitin for example i substitute something like tigecycline but i'm still continuing the amikacin so there's nothing cookbook about this treatment that's for sure
0: there are a lot of things that aren't cookbook id so i feel like we're all used to yeah. that I feel
1: like nothing I do is cookbook. but actually, maybe COVID. <laughs> that.
0: Uh, we're not, we're not going to talk about
1: COVID. We're no, we're talk- not talking about COVID. Nope. No. Oh, but I will say, if
2: anybody did an EIND for a monoclonal antibody over the past two years, that's the amount of paperwork that goes into, if you don't have an expanded use program or extended access program set up for clophasmine, that's about the amount of paperwork that you need to go through. But it could be worth it for your patient because it's pretty long-term treatment.
1: Actually, I think that's one of the most brilliant points you've made this entire time and you've made many, but um, because of a lot of the work that we've had to do for certain patients to get certain therapeutics in the last couple of years, uh, trying to get clifazamine is child's play. So <laughs> it was a great point.
0: Another point for clifazamine, aka known as the coolest drug out there. Or the wingman. Yes, or the wingman. There you go. So outside of the tetracycline class, I want to know what y'all's opinions are on if there's a role for any other specific antimicrobials in existing classes compared to their class siblings. So some examples I want to throw out here are tidazolid versus linazolid, rifampin versus rifibutin, and then daylifloxacin, which I feel like a lot of my physicians want to play with versus other fluoroquinolones.
2: I can start, um, well, well, we can start with Tadizolid versus Linazolid, and and Wendy, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. We do use quite a bit of Tadizolid, it it gets to the point in mycobacterial infections where we're using an oxazolidinone. We do use Tadizolid quite a bit more, it seems like, these days than Linazolid because of long-term tolerability issues. I I don't know if that's necessarily borne out in the literature in terms of um, peripheral neuropathies and cytopenias because at least the data that I've seen have shown similar rates in retrospective small studies of tadazolid for NTM infections, but theoretically it does have less drug toxic or adverse uh, toxicities compared to linazolid. Um, And it also, the big one is also someone's on uh, multiple serotonergic agents, it's less likely to result in serotonin syndrome. Uh, But I mean, both can be difficult to obtain. Linaselid has come down in price precipitously in the last five to 10 years, where, at least in Massachusetts, it's now covered by our state Medicaid, which is great. Um, And Tadizolid is not, Tadizolid is still very expensive. So if cost is at all a concern, Linaselid is generally the way to go with once daily dosing rather than twice daily to hopefully prevent some of those toxicities. But Wendy, yeah, I'm curious what you do over on the other coast.
1: Yeah, so, Gosh, I believe, believe it or not, I don't have a lot to add, other than to say, you know, I guess three or four years ago, when today's lid was first on the scene, um, we were trying to use it a lot, but it was difficult to get, and and I don't know if you remember this, but you had to get approved like one week at a time. So, so it's it, the the landscape has changed considerably, making its use a lot easier. I think what I have learned is that you know the conventional wisdom was well it'll it'll be fewer cytopenias, but the problem is is that we've got to use these drugs for months, right? And and here's another area where I get a little more creative with my dosing. I mean, I I, I don't think I've used 600 milligrams twice a day in any patient ever for NTM, right? I'm using 600 daily dosing, and that actually does buy you time in terms of the decreased likelihood of toxicities. Um, So I don't know. I I probably still reach for linazolid mainly because out here it's easier to get, but I will tell you that like for the Medicare population, which is the vast majority of patients I treat, it's hard to get
0: either one. Well, in linazolid, it's hard to get. I bet it's hard. (laughs) It's even harder to get dalafloxacin. So what about that versus other fluoroquinolones?
2: So Rachel, I'm I'm surprised you said your providers are reaching for delafloxin. I, I was
1: too. I'm so so intrigued by this. I,
2: I do not, I do not normally turn or like fluoroquinolones at all for NTM infections. If I'm going to use one, it'll likely be moxifloxin. I know there's been, I think it was Barbara Brown Elliott's group published on Delafloxin in vitro. I didn't like the Mics there. It looked worse than um cipro and mox i know definitely cipro for quite a few of the different mycobacterial species it might have looked better for a couple of them but it weren't wasn't the ones that i was interested in i need to pull up the paper to know those specifics i know they came out with it being positive because there were a couple ones that looked good mic 50 90 data in terms of those mic's but i would not reach for delafloxin in terms of insurance issues and lack of clinical data i try to stay away from the quinolones but if i'm going to use one it's generally moxifloxin, although it moxi does have quite a bit of QTC prolongation when we're talking about other agents that also have QTC prolongation. I just, I'm not a big fan of the quinolones for NTM, but Wendy, do you use them in your practice or do you have any thoughts on delafloxin?
1: I, I, so first of all, I hardly ever use fluoroquinolones because they're hardly ever active. Um, once in a blue moon, you know, um, maybe like fortuitum is a good example, not fortuitum in the lungs, but for extra pulmonary disease. Um, when I'm trying to do an all oral regimen and ciprofloxacin or, or moxie, what, whichever one's active to tell you the truth. I, I don't, I don't think I've ever even considered other fluoroquinolones outside of those two. I've maybe treated one person with MAC with, with including a fluoroquinolone ever because um. It was it was active, and <laughs> there were there were a lot of complexities to that case that made it difficult to use other drugs. So, every once in a while, but hardly ever.
0: Yeah, I would like to clarify my providers that do not want to play with it for NTM. It's more for other bacterial infections like pseudomonas and MRSA. So, make that clarification. I have not gotten a daily question for um, NTM specifically before, um, but okay. Last one that I wanted to know about rifampin versus rifabutin. So, Any differences between those?
2: Yeah, and I, I think that actually this we use a lot more than the quinolones or even oxazolidinones. Um, so we can talk about this a, a little bit. Rifampin is definitely the preferred option. Um, it has better data, it's likely better tolerated to. Um, the problem that everybody that's listening to this podcast knows is the drug-drug interactions. So if you have a contraindication to rifampin, there's a chance that you have a way out with rifabutin. I'm, the ones that come immediately to mind are dox, okay. uh, like a pixaban, river roxaban. Someone that's on tacrolimus where their levels have been hard to get steady, um, I might prefer rifabutin over rifampin because of how might that make their, their tacro levels go out of whack. I know Wendy has some too that she thinks about when she starts rifampin, so I'll have her opine on those, um, but uh, rifampin over rifabutin, unless you have a drug interaction where rif- rifampin can't be used, is my thought on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, just, um, so I'm an avid user of rifampin for sure, but also it's just better tolerated. And so there's so many new HIV regimens now, um, but you know, in those patients that we had to treat for, for disseminated MAC, for example, or you know other reasons, um, rifibutin it was definitely easier to use because of drug drug interactions with some of the HIV medications that we used, and then definitely for oncology patients, transplant patients that you already mentioned, rifibutin is, is preferable. Um, but the other thing to think about is that you know a lot of my patients have hypothyroidism and are on levothyroxine, for example. So it's always, I I have to put it as a line item thing to make sure that I check their TSH. And, you know, oftentimes because they're on these medications, sometimes for 12 to 18 months, um, we do need to make dose adjustments to the levothyroxine, for example. Another call out is, you know, interactions with prednisone, for example. So a lot of my patients have COPD and they'll be on prednisone either for other pulmonary indications, or they'll just get, you know, pulse dose steroids, for example, for an exacerbation. But just knowing that it's going to decrease, you know, your functional Uh, levels of steroid in the blood. The other thing that we experienced recently was just with narcotics too. Um, We had a patient who was actually on rifampin um, because of a hardware associated infection with staph aureus, but also they were having a difficult time controlling pain. And I thought about it like, you know, I think it's the rifampin, right? So just important things for, for people to think about. And then the other thing is, especially in my younger patients, like my CF patients, just oral contraceptives. That's another big interaction.
2: Yeah. And one thing for this group, I think most, if a pharmacist or a physician is listening to this podcast, they likely already know, but rifampin induces CYP enzymes. So as an inducer, it takes about five to seven days for that interaction to kick in. And then once rifampin is discontinued, it takes five to seven days for it to come out. So some people aren't thinking about it when the interaction or when something goes wrong a week after the start of it, because they're not thinking that the uh, interaction would kick in that late. But that comes up quite a bit on the inpatient side.
1: It does. It's it's such an important point, and I think it, people forget about these things, but it, it is really important. And this also plays into like well, more with rifampin, um, just in patients who are getting LTBI treatment, or you know that sort of thing
0: too. Well, if people are forgetting, that's why you guys are here to remind people. Um, and speaking of difficult to manage medications, I want to talk about amikacin. Not the easiest thing to manage, especially in the outpatient setting. And we don't have great data on what the best monitoring goals are. Um, Wendy, does IV amikasin still have a role in NTM management? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it
1: does, I guess I would say, especially in, in the patients that I'm treating, because I, I tend to see a lot of patients with advanced lung disease, uh, you know, advanced cavitary disease. So I'm a pretty avid user of IV aminoglycosides. Um, there, were some, uh, there were some publications uh, out of National Jewish, and I'm trying to think, it might have been in the 90s, that really looked at the intermittent dosing. Um, you're really more likely to get into trouble when you're using daily dosing with any of the aminoglycosides. So I'm I'm sure I'm I'm speak I'm preaching to the choir here, right? So I typically do intermittent dosing in my patients, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, weight-based dosing, and then I work very closely with my ID pharmacists who I think in the beginning, when I first came to my new institution, were like, "Oh my God, what are you doing with all of these patients on amikacin?" And now they're like, "No sweat." Um, but you know, we, we base it on a Cmax. Calculation, and I know this is probably bread and butter for you guys, but we, we're typically targeting um, a level of four times the MIC. So, for example, if you have a MAC isolate and the MIC is eight, four times um, the MIC is thirty-two. So that's really the Cmax that we're targeting. Um, and so, my my pharmacists do all the dosing adjustments for me now, <laughs> based on that, which is
0: which. But I would love to hear what you guys have to say about that. Yes, it's a pharmacist's dream, amikacin monitoring. Definitely, <laughs> how do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: so it's it's actually so interesting, Wendy, because we use, right, Rachel, you summed it up at the beginning, great. We don't know what the best monitoring is in terms of efficacy for amikacin. Um, we, we, we tend to use the same model we do for uh, bacterial infections and go for a, a goal peak to MIC ratio of eight to 10. We never get there with M. let's be honest, those MICs are always usually 16, sometimes 8, and you're never going to get, even with an MIC of 8, a peak of 64 plus most of the time without having toxicities. Um, So I I really like Wendy's way of four times the MIC a bit better. I do know there's, I believe there is a study that said that you need at least a peak to MIC ratio of 3.2 or above for efficacy. So maybe we could do that four times, but in general, I, if I can push the dosing and the patient's tolerating it, we go for that eight to 10 times, especially if it's a lower MIC, we're trying to, trying to hit those bacterial peak concentrations. But I, I think the bigger thing isn't, the, I mean, peak is important for efficacy, but the harder thing to manage and the one we really get on top of is trough monitoring and safety. Um, On thrice weekly dosing, we don't fall into many issues with levels being detectable when the next dose is due, which is great. But up front, we generally do start therapy, especially in those with cavitary disease with 15 milligrams per kilogram daily, and then transition them to thrice weekly down the line. And and during that daily treatment phase, we do get quite a few trough levels to make sure that the patients are clearing the amikacin uh, adequately. Um, I, I will say the whole peak monitoring too is a little fraught because most of the times when you get a level it's not necessarily at the true peak so a lot of centers will do two and six hour levels post dose to then extrapolate back to the true the true peak um, but. Uh, we could debate the peak because it sounds like I, I go for double the goal peak to MIC ratio quite a bit of the time, um, but it's almost impossible to make so. We end up usually, I don't want to say quote unquote, giving up in terms of trying to reach those top levels. We keep them on the amikacin, but we settle for that peak of whatever, 35, 36, whatever it ends up being.
1: Well, there's a lot of settling that happens with the management of these patients. I think something that's important to point out too, and um, and I, trust me, I love being uh, scientific and evidence based, of course. But but what we do know, especially as it pertains to amicacein, is that. The in vitro um, or the in vivo response does not always necessac- necessarily reflect what we're seeing in vitro, and so you know, and, and I say this having worked with people who who you know cumulatively have more than fifty years of experience treating NTM patients, where they've played w- with amikacin for a long time, right? So you know, there will be patients who have MICs of sixty four. They And and we're talking salvage treatment at this point, right? But they still gave it a shot and it turns out, you know, people hadn't been using it because the MICs were so high, but yet the patients did great. And and I'm saying that this is anecdotal, but it's anecdotal over and over and over (laughs) for a lot of different patients. So I'm just saying that, you know... um, I, I will probably still reach for it, even with higher MICs. We'll do the best we can with the dosing and try to limit the toxicities. Right? To tell you the truth, I mean, I mean, tinnitus being one of the most most common things that we see, certainly, and we um, and high frequency hearing loss. But generally speaking, in, in my patient population, I mean, certainly there's, there's a subset of patients who have chronic kidney disease and other comorbidities, but a lot of these women, when you, when you look at the epidemiology of this disease and who is it really impacting, um, they don't actually have a lot of other comorbidities. They don't necessarily have any underlying renal dysfunction. And I really only ever get into trouble if, for example, they get tennis elbow and start taking high-dose NSAIDs, then they have acute kidney injury then my aminoglycoside starts. And why are they playing tennis with the pick line in? But that's a whole different thing. And, um, and, and then they develop consequences of the aminoglycosides because of the ac- accumulation, right? But it wasn't a direct renal injury from, from the aminoglycoside to start. So, you know, just fun things to have to deal with.
2: And I'll just put in a little plug at the end too of we talked mostly about amikacin here and that's what we use in 95% of mycobacterial infections. M-cholone is the exception where we do prefer tobramycin as our amino of choice up front, and dosing similar to what we do for gram negative infections with five to seven mix per cake daily is generally what we do. And then transitioning to thrice weekly if we're going um, in, in the transition phase.
0: Wendy, I feel like you have a very specific, specific example someone who played tennis with a pick line in, and that's fueling all of it, your ideas about um, and difficulties in NSAID use. Is that true?
1: Oh, it's, it's just, it's amazing to me sometimes what my patients end up doing. And so then when, in, in retrospect, then I do perspective education with everybody. Because
0: <laughs> you never know. I mean, if we know one thing, it's that you never know. You
1: never know. So, I'm, I'm yeah. glad they're active. I mean, what can I say? You
0: know? <laughs> yeah. Um, we've talked about some drug interaction difficulties and adverse drug events already, um, but they are so prevalent, especially with these three to four drug regimens like you guys have mentioned, and especially when you're getting into the salvage area. Jeff, do you have any additional pearls of, what, of best practices for managing all of these?
2: Yeah, I, I'll keep it simple here. Uh, use azithromycin instead of clarithromycin. Use rifabutin if you need to over rifampin in the situations we talked about a few minutes ago. And just remember, treatment is generally long term. So like once a patient is stabilized with the drug interactions that are in play, things go relatively smoothly unless toxicities come up. But I, I just, I mean, I'm on <laughs> Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast, I have to plug the importance of pharmacists in transitions of care and long-term follow-up. So when interactions are in play, your pharmacist is your go-to resource.
1: Wendy, do you well, have I, any
0: pearls to add?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do, but I would also give a plug for my, a shout out to my pharmacist, because I could not I couldn't do it without him, that's for sure. Um, you know, just in terms of of you know best practices, you know, um, if we're starting patients on an immunoglycoside, whether it's IV or inhaled, um, I typically get a baseline audiogram. And then monthly, if they're on IV immunoglycosides and every three months, just for monitoring purposes. Um, if patients are starting at theambeatal, I send them to their ophthalmologist to get a baseline evaluation, and then typically it depends on if they other if they have concomitant um, eye or other vision problems, right? Because I've had patients who started having visual difficulties while on a thambitol. We send them and we hold the drug, and we send them to ophthalmology, and it turns out that you know, they have cataracts or glaucoma is worsened. So it's, it's really important to know what you're dealing with because you, you don't necessarily want to lose that drug unless you have to, right? So just making sure that they're getting their routine eye exams. And I actually, you know, caution them to make sure that they're reading something with fine print at home. Um, so that if they have two consecutive days of visual changes, stop the drug and call me, call your ophthalmologist. And then just laboratory monitoring. And you guys know this, but you know we get baseline labs before starting any of these drugs. And then usually weekly, if they're on an IV aminoglycoside or every three months. Otherwise, if they're on just a standard three-drug oral regimen for MAC, for example. So you know those, those are just best practices. And it just plays into the importance of a multidisciplinary approach so you know really partnering partnering with your pharmacists and obviously there's nutrition and pulmonology and all of these other people that are so integral to helping manage these patients and then just clear expectations. And, and I, in terms of what to expect on these medications and that, that really helps foster treatment success. They know what to expect, telling them that their urine is going to turn orange with the rifampin, those sorts of things. And, you know, my, my pharmacist really reinforced these things too. So, you know, so often they need to hear it over and over and over again for it to really sink in because we certainly don't want to cause harm as part of their treatment journey.
0: Yes, this is an area where patient counseling and involvement is so important and another great area for um, pharmacists and physicians to really be engaged with their patients and have them be engaged in their care back to be really successful because providers are going to be getting to know these patients for a very long time. So it's only going to benefit both. Um, Wrapping it up here, Wendy We've talked about therapy initiation, we've talked about the drugs you use, we talk about how to manage toxicities, interactions, pivot when we need to pivot, which is often in these infections. But let's let's kind of finish up here by talking about how long we really need to treat these infections.
1: Well, you know, according to guidelines, and, and this is based on lots of clinical data, expert opinion, um, the the average treatment duration. Is twelve to eighteen months of treatment, but the minimum treatment duration is going to be twelve months from the time of sputum culture conversion to negative, so you know we're we're checking sputum cultures monthly after they initiate treatment because we want to know exactly when they convert to negative because trust me, those patients don't want to be on drugs one day longer than they need to be unless it's clofazamine, of course, so um, twelve months from sputum conversion to negative, but sometimes that therapy is extended depending on. Um, you know, a variety of factors, you know, whether or not they have advanced multi-cavitary disease with abscesses, or if they have underlying rheumatoid arthritis and are on TNF-alpha inhibitors. So there's a lot of factors that can play into their treatment duration.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll echo that in that when we're talking about pulmonary NTM, it's at least 12 months. Um, 12 to 18 months is probably where you end up. Echoing Wendy, you might go shorter than that in non-pulmonary infections, but that's a completely different podcast. Like we talked about at the outset, we're talking pulmonary here. Yep.
0: Great. Well, before we finish today, we're gonna pivot to everyone's favorite segment, our I Feel Nerdy segment. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks and fun facts. And today we have a really good one, in my opinion, um, edits you guys telling me about your craziest NTM case in an immunocompetent patient.
2: Okay. I can get started because, Wendy, I'm sure you have a much better this story than me. You've seen probably hundreds more patients than I have with NTM infections, but a lot of our patients, and one sticks out them in particular, um, come in with NTM infections. This is non-pulmonary. I know our entire podcast was pulmonary, but I'm going outside of that realm for the craziest NTM case. We get a lot of cosmetic surgery post-op infections. Um, Some of them come from the Dominican Republic. Not all of them do. Some of them are from the Southeastern United States, but patients that are coming in perfectly healthy, young, most of them have been female, coming in status post breast augmentation or reduction or liposuction or both. um, And they are dreadful infections in a very healthy host. So they generally tolerate the IV aminoglycoside we give them, but it's not, it's not a great situation. And just use clean water and sterile water when you're doing procedures, please, um, where, wherever you are, because that's likely the cause of most of these NTM infections in cosmetic surgery is uh, non-sterile water.
1: Yeah, I, I have to say, um, I, I'm trying to think, you know, some, some of my patients with pulmonary disease have to have some pretty aggressive surgeries Um, where they have something called an LOS or flap. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with this or if they even do this at your institution, but basically there's an opening in the chest wall literally for months um, because they're at risk for developing bronchopleural fistulas. So it's pretty crazy to have (laughs) a patient with this (laughs) chest wall that's that's open because they've needed this, this complex surgery. But I have to agree with Jeff. I think by far and away the most um, bizarre and complex patients are those in um, patients who either come back medical tourism. I had a patient who had to have 12 surgeries for MFsessis that um, for liposuction, 12. And she was highly disfigured. So, you know, and and multiple drug allergies. She was on antibiotics for a year and a half. Probably every drug we talked about today, she probably saw some. It, almost all of them, <laughs> so
0: the, they're crazy cases for sure. That sounds so horrible. Did, you, did she at least have a good outcome in the end? She did. We were able to effect a cure, but boy, it was a horrible journey for her.
2: The couple of patients that I think about too, many, many surgical interventions later have successfully been treated, but well, you know, normally we- good outcomes because they can tolerate what we throw at
0: them
1: yes yes that's true they they're they've all been young but i i, I guess this is another and i know once again it's not an episode about extrapulmonary disease but it's, it's for these rapid growers and it typically, you know, those patients coming back from the Dominican Republic or, or wherever it is, you know, it, it's really mostly a surgical disease and, and that needs to be emphasized up front. You know, honestly, the antibiotics are, I don't want to say palliative, but it, it's sort of mop up. It's, it's primarily a surgical disease. It can be very difficult for, to get surgeons to do these surgeries, especially when the initial intervention was done by a plastic surgeon in the first place and they need plastics to eventually get involved. And
0: this, it's this, these are tough cases for plastic surgeons. So <laughs> wow, just to clarify, here at Breakpoints, we are neither for or against cosmetic plastic surgery. We just please ask, use clean water. Anyway. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for being here today. I think this was a great episode and I got a lot of information about NTM infections and a lot of my questions answered. And so I know everyone listening here today is really thankful as well. And so also to those listening, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Again, this episode of Breakpoints has been sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from our partners at Paratech. While Paratech graciously supported this episode, they didn't participate in its development, content, or production. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Wendy Drummond and Jeff Pearson. Breakpoints was created by Julian Gesto, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pope. This episode was produced by myself and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Rajiv Shah, Christian Gill, and Mandy Noval. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zavante. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.